Welcome to the Leadership Pulse, where we talk about all things culture, leadership, and burnout. I'm your co-host, Jessica Zampetri. And I'm Becky Wolf, and I have the pleasure of introducing our guest today. Our guest today is Dr. Dyke Drummond. He is a Mayo-trained family practice physician, burnout survivor, executive coach, and founder of thehappymd.com. He teaches simple methods to lower stress, build more life balance, and more ideal practice. These tools were discovered and tested via Dr. Drummond's 3,000 hours of physician coaching experience. Since 2010, he has also been delivering a live burnout prevention training to over 40,000 physicians on behalf of 175 corporate and association clients on four continents. Dr. Drummond, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. My pleasure. Guilty as charged. <laughs> We're going to go ahead and open it with the question that we ask all of our guests, which is if there was one thing you could shout from the rooftops that you want every person in healthcare to hear about culture, burnout, or medicine in general, what would that be? Wow. See, that's one of those questions that makes sense and it makes good um, article fodder on the internet and link bait SEO, but it really, that the question itself is part of the problem. Okay. Um, and I'm going to take the word problem and I'm going to say, I am now guilty of having used that word inappropriately. So the question itself is part of the struggle. And the struggle is the use of the word problem in the first place. Mm. Um, and I'm just going to, this is great that we're starting with this because it's such a pervasive issue. 99.9% .9 of the time when a physician uses the word problem or a physician leader, a healthcare leader uses the word problem, they're using it incorrectly. Not that we don't face problems, it's just that most of the things that we're challenged by and most of the things that cause struggle don't meet the definition criteria for the word problem. And if you continue to see them as problems and search for solutions, that makes everything so much worse. It's like lighting a match to a kerosene soaked pile of rags. So just absolute basic fundamentals that we have to understand is problem is a specific term. It comes from mathematics. And by definition, if I apply a solution to a problem, because that's what a problem is, something that has a solution, you can fix it and it will go away. When I apply a solution to a problem, what should happen to a problem? It should go away. It should go away. So let's be really specific. If, if, if I could hold two plus two right here, what's the solution? Boy. I can take that. It's solved. It's done. And I can throw it on a pile behind me of fixed problems that we never have to worry about. Four plus four is what? Eight. Eight. And I could keep going. Solution to burnout is what? Come on More now. Than one thing. Burnout's a huge problem. And you know what happens? You know what happens? If you use that about your own struggle, what will happen is you won't be able to find a solution. Mm. You will feel dejected and you will doubt your own competence. You will start to, if you go way down the rat hole of burnout, doubt whether or not you ever should have become a doctor in the first place. In an organization, the senior leaders will look at you. If you've recovered from your own burnout and you step up and say, hey, I want to play a role in wellness in our organization, the CEO will say, great, burnout's a real problem. We need solutions, Dyke. We need a solution guy. What do you see your solution? 
and you aren't going to be able to solve it. And so the CEO is going to lose their patience with you after a year or two and say, hey, we tried that burnout prevention stuff. When was it? Oh, yeah, back in 18. That stuff doesn't work. So what we have to do is understand the true nature of not only burnout, but most of the issues that are faced in human life and in the practice of medicine. And I'll show you how pervasive it is in just a little bit, as long as I get, first get a chance to expose the true nature yeah. of burnout. Do you think that there's something hiding somewhere? We just haven't found it yet, despite the fact that the whole healthcare industry has been searching for it for 40 years. There is one thing hiding somewhere that you can do one time and you never have to worry about burnout again. Do you think that magic elixir special sauce actually exists? And the answer is obviously no. Now, what that means is that you can't solve burnout because it must not be a problem in the first place if there's no solution. And what you're looking for is an energy balance. <clears throat> you're looking for a balance between the energy you burn and the energy that you're able to recharge in some method that you use for yourself and everybody's strategy is different. What you're looking for is balance. And so what burnout is, is it's a never ending balancing act. It's what I call a dilemma. And that's a, an approximate fit for the meaning of the word, a never ending balancing act. And you can maintain a positive energy balance, but you can't solve it. You can't do one thing one time and you never have to worry about burnout again. What you have to do is coordinate a different S word. S-T, I already said it once, S-T-R, the word strategy. is strategy. And the only difference between strategy and solution is the number of steps. Mm, that's a really good so distinction. When I meet people, we do some very, 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 very simple baseline measures. I say on a scale of zero to 10, if you think back over the last couple of years in whatever is your practice, and you may be clinical, you may be clinical and leadership, you may be a leader, it doesn't really matter to me. By the way, none of these principles are specific to doctors. Okay, it just happens to be my population is doctors. So if you think back over your career, your practice for the last couple of months, and if you were to rate your satisfaction, by the way, satisfaction is a, an evaluation process that was wiped out of your consciousness in residency because it really didn't matter whether you were satisfied at all and nobody cared. Mm. Are you with yeah. me? Are you supposed to be happy as a resident? No. no, you're supposed to do one thing. You're supposed to survive. You're supposed to make it to the finish line. It doesn't matter if you're missing a, a leg when you get there. You don't have to be in one piece. So I say, what's your level of satisfaction in your practice over the last couple of months? Mm -hmm. Zero to 10. Zeros couldn't get any worse. 10 is it couldn't get any better. By the way, what's your numbers? In life? Over the last few months. <laughs> you, okay, life. You can open it up to life too. Let's say life. I guess okay. seven. Nice. I would say seven or eight. Great. Seven, eight is healthy. And I'll give you some normal, normal ranges. Okay. So six, seven, eight. Maybe nine, don't usually see nines or tens, but six, seven, eight, you're usually feeling pretty good and your energy is usually positive. But if you're in an abusive work situation, a place where you're overwhelmed and they won't give you the staff that you need to do your job, the MR sucks, your boss is a psychopath, and you come to me off the internet because you're going to search physician burnout, bump into me, and you might come and do a discovery session and consider coaching or something like that, your number is going to be two, three, four. 
and it's typically going to be on a downward spiral. And if I was able to stick a turkey timer in you, you know, one of those pop out things at Thanksgiving, you'd have popped a long time ago because your energy's been in the crapper for a while. What happens with coaching is we help people identify their ideal job description, which is something they've also never contemplated. That's another thing that's knocked out of your thought processes in residency because you're focused only on surviving graduation. And, and when you get out, you are usually very well trained as a resident. You've forgotten you have free will and you're going to grab the first job description off the rack that pays you enough. Yeah. And who designed your job description? Did you have any role in designing this job description from Mega Health Corp that just hired you fresh out of residency? No. So what is the, what are the odds that this job description off the rack, generic boilerplate job description is pointed at your ideal practice? What are the odds that it, it's, it, it happens to by chance be your ideal job description? The odds start with a Z, by the way. Zero. But also it's zero. zero. Do they so even know here's what, what their ideal job situation is at right. that point? They do if I've coached them in residency or medical <laughs> right. school. That's what they should be teaching you when you're in your training. They should be teaching you how to avoid survival burnout in the course of the medical education system. I say you're passing through the bowels of the medical education system. You need to survive that. You don't want to jettison all aspects of your life and focus only on your career so you don't have a life when you graduate and then somebody should be telling people and if you're a resident listening right now and by the way this is any program nurse practitioners pas nurses it doesn't matter whatever you have pledged to put the patient first and you're going through an immersive long difficult training program survival is important because you have to survive what do they call the person who graduates last from their medical school class doctor doctor so survival is imperative but once you go through the graduation doors you are absolutely free mm -hmm. to do anything you want to do with that degree so i usually help people go back to the origin story when you decided to be a nurse nurse practitioner pa doctor when you made that decision write down some specifics write down some specifics about what you were thinking why you decided to do this, what you thought your life would be like at the far end of this medical education process, because burnout happens when you graduate and you still act like a resident. That's a good point. Cause you haven't can, I'm going to give you a job description. You don't think you can negotiate. Yeah. Cause you haven't re just reconnected to the original why. Right. The original why is buried six, to, you know, seven to 16 years of medical education have buried that in obey. So you forgot you got free will, you're on a job description and a lot of people burn out right away mm. because they're not fulfilling a dream that started back when they chose to go to medical school. So they're, they come to me, they're exhausted, their energy, their, their satisfaction is a three. Their energy is below normal. <clears throat> and what we do over the course of about six to nine months is we take the major stressors in their life and we try different tactics. I always use this. I, I must get this out 10 times a week. Vision strategy tactics. 
people ask me when I see them for the first time, Dyke, what should I do? Dyke, I'm burned out. What should I do? Now, just look at this word stat. Where does the question, what should I do, live in this word stack? Is that a vision question, a strategy question, or a tactical question? A tactical question. Tactical question. So they say, what should I do? I say, I have no idea. <laughs> and the only reason you don't know is you don't have a clear vision. Mm. Right? So let me give you a very simple example. Do either of you have children? Yeah, we both do. Yes, we both do. Okay, good. <laughs> Check it out. If you yelled to your kids, hey, kids, get packing. We're going on vacation. What would your kids yell back? Where are we going? Where are we going? <laughs> you got to give them a vision so they know what to pack. It's just that simple. Okay. So the first thing we do is work on their ideal job description. And it takes a while to wake it up. You got to be super patient with yourself. And especially if you're a woman, you have to be super patient with feeling guilty for even wanting something for yourself. Because mm. that's also drummed out of you. Yeah. And then what ends up happening is over six to nine months, what we do is in pursuit of a more ideal practice, we pick a tool or two, a tactic or two from our library of 247 tactics that we teach, right? Pick something and try it. See if it works. And if it works, it increases your energy level and increases your satisfaction. Our job is then to wind that into a new habit because the balancing act never ends. Yeah. In fact, it gets more complicated when you're out of residency and you have kids and your kids become teenagers, right? Or heaven forbid your relationship should fall apart and you would be a single mom or maybe you have a special needs kid. I mean, I can keep going. Everybody my age and, and a little bit younger is also a caregiver for an elderly parent who's passing away, all that kind of stuff, right? So life doesn't get any easier. You have to have habits that lower your stress, this is physics, lower your stress or increase your ability to recharge. And so when people graduate from coaching six to nine months out, they're up around six or seven and they say, you know, I don't think I need these calls every other week like we've been to. And I'm feeling pretty good. Thank you so much. I say, well, hang on a second. Exit interview. <laughs> think back to when we started. And tell me. What's your strategy? What are the things you're doing now that you weren't doing when we met? And they always look up and right. And there's about 30 seconds of silence and they say, oh my gosh, it's just two things or it's just three things. And they're little tiny things, but they had never looked in the mirror, asked themselves, what's my ideal practice? And, and self-care had been beaten out of them during the transition, the the transit through the medical education system. And you were talking about neurosurgeons earlier, yeah, right? I work with a lot of them. Wow. First of all, surgical interns, they try to kill surgical interns every hour of every day for an entire year. Yep. And then surgeons are beat to death in almost every step that they go through in the process, typically do surgery, residency, then a fellowship, maybe two, maybe three to get their neurosurge qualifications. And then, um, it's, it's just so much more difficult <laughs> if you decide to be a neurosurgeon or an intensivist or a pulmonologist that works in the ICU or an, an ER doctor, any one of those kind of situations where what ends up happening is we can add in a whole, you know, a chocolate cake, you would put big chocolate frosting on it. The frosting on the cake of that is trauma, yeah. repeated trauma, daily trauma, having to turn people off, call the organ 
procurement people. I mean, deal with the, it is, yeah. So I actually, I know a, co- um, a physician who's in your coaching program. <laughs> She's an ER physician and has already seen impact from what you're doing. And um, one of the things that she told me was that she's like, I work exclusively nights because I have more control over my schedule. So that was a big piece for her. Um, so what would you tell physicians who are working in hospital practices? Because uh, we were talking before, there's less autonomy in decision making. Uh, what other factors are key for them to to create the ideal practice for them? Well, and again, um, I want to be really clear. What you do is you create a description of what your ideal practice would be. And what you're trying to do is establish some movement in that direction. Mm. Almost nobody gets their ideal practice. The only people in an employee situation, and by the way, hospitalist, employee, okay? What we're talking about, and I want to be really clear because these distinctions are not ones that most people talk about. Most people talk about an employee physician in a fee-for-service setting is a doctor. No, that's a doctor in an employee fee-for-service setting. And that's where the majority of the stress is, especially in the United States of America, because of our chaotic multi-payer system, which drives up the expenses for everybody. So um, what I'll say is that sit down. And again, we talked about this before the call, right? There is nothing that can possibly replace the power of a written journal. And what you have to do is to, and and the healthiest doctors have this habit. Most of them learn it in recovery from their burnout. But if you imagine a pendulum rocking back and forth, is to establish a pendulum-like rocking motion where on one side of the swing, you're working in your practice, doing your job at work. But you also have to swing out of that chaotic work environment to look at your job, to work on your practice outside of work. And if all you do is work in it, you're destined to be trapped in in Einstein's insanity trap. So the first step is to rock out, take some time, be very patient with yourself. Think back to when you decided to go to medical school or nurse practitioner school or whatever it is that you're getting qualified in and write down what you were thinking at the time and what you thought back then your future would be like after graduation and when you were in practice and take some time to hone that as much as possible. Then here's how you decide the match, right? So this is a two circle Venn diagram, two circles side by side. One of them's labeled this job. One of them's labeled your ideal job. And what they are is these are circles of feeling. So let me explain it to you. You know what this job feels like now that you have a bead on your ideal practice. And by the way, it takes a couple of weeks for your ideal practice to wake up. You can imagine what your ideal practice would feel like. You know what this one feels like. You can imagine what your ideal practice would feel like. How much overlap is there between those two circles? And this is in percent, 20, 40, 60, 80%. What we're looking to do is push those circles into a further alignment by making some changes. And we can actually do this kind of estimation in a coaching call. So for instance, I don't care which one of you gives me an okay. answer, but what as we're talking here right now in your practice, in your practice, what's one thing that you would like to be able to accomplish that would lower your stress level or get you home sooner? What's one thing you'd like to change? 
Neither of us are practicing. <laughs> we, we have our own schedules at this point. So imagine this. I can tell okay. you imagine what this. most of my surgeons would like to change that I work with. Okay. It, what would you be what? Doing more of the surgeries they love. So they are ideal clients in the surgery door versus it just being this high volume patient thing. So I work with a lot of complex spine surgeons. They want the complex so, spine so surgery patients. They want to be able to they do would, the surgeries they love and be, like that's their genius mode. Yeah. And they want somebody to hand it to them too. <laughs> I, I can just smell the fact that they don't want to take responsibility for actually attracting these people. Uh, that is the essence of an entrepreneurial semi entrepreneurial practice. So what they would want is control over the prospect inflow. Yep. And they would want to tilt that more towards their ideal client. Notice you, you said ideal client, ideal patient, ideal, ideal practice, yeah. ideal patient, right? You have to have an idea of what here it is again. You have to have be really clear in what you really want mm -hmm. before you can do the things to attract them, right? That's yeah. So if I said to your surgery client, if I was coaching your surgery person, right? And I said, well, they tell me that and I say, what's your overlap with your ideal practice right now? And they say it's 60%. I say, great. And how many of these ideal clients, think about it for just a second and go ahead and take as much time as you want. In the last month, how many of these ideal clients did you have? Probably like and she says 30, 40%, three. 30%. Oh my, that's killer that right it? there. Okay, oh my God. I like estimated high, three patients. Let's go at yours. Yeah, I would say, I would say I almost never get to see one. Well, I almost never get to see one because the system throws me whatever they think I'm supposed to be doing. And half the time it's completely inappropriate. Mm -hmm. That would be a normal thing for a surgeon to say. Yeah. Um, and so he, this person says three, I said, okay, great. And, and right now you feel like you have a 60% overlap with your ideal practice and you're seeing three of your ideal patients. It's like, okay, great. What if in the next 30 days you saw nine, if we tripled the number of patients, if you saw two a week for each of the weeks in this next, in this next month, what would your overlap be then? And they'll look up and right and they'll say, <laughs> Man, that would be so awesome just to see two a week. That would be amazing. That'd be 75%. So we went from 60 to 75%. So you can estimate ahead of time what a change in the practice would make yeah. in your satisfaction through this Venn diagram. And um, for a lot of people, for instance, they just want the same MA every day. Yeah, that's true. Same surgical they team just every want day. An, an MA. Yeah every day. <laughs> That's some of them too. Or a PA. Or, yeah. Because yeah. right now what's happened is the short staffing and the, the XX work of EMR and the patient portals, my chart and all that kind of stuff. The basic thing that's going on is there's, there's too much work and not enough hands on deck yeah. almost everywhere. Yeah. 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 And it's, I love the distinctions that you're making the whole, like the aligning, the feeling to the ideal practice and just getting them to even think of like the percentage that they're currently satisfied, like how much of an overlap that is. Like that's something that seems so simple, but <laughs> isn't done that much. No, never. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm the only person I know who teaches this, but, but in my mind, and I'm a very kinesthetic person, right? 
So there are visual learners, there are kinesthetic learners. I find a lot of surgeons are kinesthetic people because they want to use their hands. It's like being a potter. You want to get in there and knead the clay, right? Chance to cut's a chance to cure. Um, what ends up happening <clears throat> is that we're bringing the body back into their day-to-day -day experience because the, tra the transit through the bowels of the medical education system is a denial of your human nature. Because it doesn't matter how tired you are, how hungry you are, how much you have to pee. It doesn't matter. We're going to ignore all the signals from the body. And when we ignore the basic physical signals like that, another thing that goes out the window is fulfillment, satisfaction, happiness. And heaven forbid the word joy. I never use that word. I won't use it again in this interview, I promise. <laughs> but it's like, but what I mean is, what I mean is you sit you get away from work. You swing out of the of the whirlwind. You pop yourself out and you're sitting there having a glass of tea on a Sunday and you look back at your life and you say, you know what? Me deciding to become a doctor, that's worked out pretty darn good. I am a mm -hmm. lucky person. That is a thought that is laid on a feeling. And it's that feeling that we're looking to reconnect with. Because when you were back at the light workers fork in the road, when you said I'm going into healthcare, me, medical school, right? You had a vision. It, your head was way in your rectum. I mean, like you had no idea. You had no idea what you were thinking, but you were thinking something and you were feeling something. And what I believe is it was a pull to create an extraordinary life by making what you felt was an extraordinary decision. People looked at you and said, wow, yeah, you should go to medical school or you should be a PA because I know I haven't got it in me, right? And they put you on that pedestal for reasons that are clear at the time. But how does it work out when you're 40? It's that connection. How do we reel it back in yeah. given how usually traumatizing and self-denying the education process is? And that connection... and. It I talk about it all the time is those things are so common in the entrepreneurial world and the business world. They haven't really hit healthcare yet. So you've obviously have had an education that's far past just regular physicians. How, like, how did that happen? Where did your, <laughs> where did it come from? How did you connect the dots yeah. here? Because that's not typical. Well, first of all, I'm 64. Okay. Uh, I burned out of my family practice when I was 40. So I, it was back in uh, 1999. I was a full service family doc. My story goes like this. My grandmother, my mother's mother, went to the University of Illinois in the 1930s, determined to be a doctor, came back a teacher, which was a, a reasonable diversion for a woman in that yeah. day and age. Mm -hmm. If she had graduated as a physician there, she would have been one of the very first female physicians in the state of Illinois. My mother, her daughter, Went to University of Illinois in the 1950s, wanted to be a doctor, came home a teacher. And so I was the firstborn grandchild and a boy. So the dream was to be fulfilled by me. And my family never said that. They never encouraged me. It was never verbal. But I went to medical school. I always wanted to be just a simple country doctor, full service family doc. So Mount Vernon, Washington, halfway between Seattle and Vancouver, BC, up I-5. Uh, full service family doc for 10 years captain of the local rugby team, 
chairman of the executive committee of uh, our 40 doctor multi-specialty group. Love being a doctor. I really enjoyed every second of it. I felt it was half detective, half teacher. Figure it out. Teach the person how to take care of themselves. And uh, at the age of 40, all of a sudden, by the way, both my mother and my grandmother were dead at that point. Mm. And I had I had been there and done that 35,000 visits worth of family practice, 500 babies delivered, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, for about three weeks in a row, it felt like somebody was choking me every time I went in the office. I uh, took a month off, did a bunch of yoga, shaved my head, prayed that it would go away when I came back, but it didn't recur immediately when I started seeing patients. So I walked into the CEO's office, signed my resignation and walked away from my medical career, which I don't recommend as a transition strategy. So if anybody's listening to this right now and you're feeling like you ought to chuck it, don't. It burns way too many bridges. Um, first thing I did was got certified as an executive coach. So there's the first layer of non-doctor training. Yeah. And I love coaching because it's a completely different M.O. Doctors are digging for disease, teaching what's wrong, right? Coaches are looking for what's right, holding you capable. Second thing I did was got certified in interactive guided imagery. <laughs> interactive guided imagery. Active guided imagery. Yeah. That's where it looks like hypnosis. The client relaxes and, and goes into their inner reality. And we talk to pieces of their personality inside their inner reality. Really fruity, juicy stuff. And we can talk about I mean, that all day long. I shaved your head and did yoga. We're already into the fruity, juicy right. stuff. Right, right, right. I actually created a practice where I got paid for doing interactive guided imagery. And then um, my ex-wife began to become successful as a meeting facilitator and a facilitation skills trainer. And I became the COO of that organization. And we transitioned to her being the, the sole wage earner in the family. And I did everything else, including learning how to build websites, SEO, and all that kind of stuff. And that marriage and that business went with her uh, back in 2010. And I decided that I would use my coaching skills to try and begin a website that would support a one-on-one -on -one coaching practice just for me, my own private coaching practice. And I launched a website called The HappyMD.com. It's meant to be an oxymoron. You're spent, it's meant to be a head snap. Happy MD, what I gotta see this stuff, right? And by the way, there's a V on the front. If you just put happy MD in, it used to be a porn site. Now it is a place where you can buy a marijuana there license. You go. And they're always asking me, where's their license? I give them my money, where's my license? It's like get the URL right. V happymd.com. Oh my god. And and at the time I was one of the only I was one of only two coaches, physician coaches that I'm aware of that were on the internet and uh, it was dropped that easy to establish first page position on Google search for physician burnout. I was there eight of the 10 slots at one point in time and burnout and um, the rise of the physician employees started cresting then. I mean, here we are 2014, 2017, it actually crossed 50% of doctors are now, we're now employees. So fortunately or otherwise, I've been busy. <laughs> And I'm also a writer. So when I started seeing patterns and what was burning people out and what was making them better, I wrote blog posts, turned it into a book. And now all of a sudden, every hospital in the country now employs 100, 200, 300, 500 
2,000, 3,000 doctors and their CMOs were calling me saying, can you do something to help me with these burned out whiny people? Can you do a training to help them prevent burnout? I said, sure. And I built a training and, and actually that 40,000 doctor figure, uh, I stopped counting four years ago. So I well in excess of 40,000 doctors for well in excess of 175 organizations. And we've also branched out into coaching physician wellness champions. Mm. So we have a physician wellness champion retreat, and I have six physician coaches just like me that work with me here at the Happy MD. And I run a million dollar business. So all that. What has been the most fulfilling thing about your transition to coaching full time? Um, I think that the thing that stood me up originally um, was the realization in about the year 2012 when i had you know 100 clients under my belt was the realization that hmm i've become the person i would have so loved to have a cup of coffee with back when i quit and that is the typical journey of of what they call wound work yeah. if you're familiar with the yeah. term wound work is somebody who helps other people prevent or heal from a wound they had to navigate. So what's my wound? Right. My own burnout, yeah. multi-generational wound, grandma, mom, me, right? Yeah. And so in that wounding, I learned some things that I now teach to people who are similar, either at risk or wounded themselves. So mm -hmm. I realized that, you know, it's like, man, and I thought, and I've always thought if I had had a coach, like me available at that point in time that I had consulted, where would I be? And I, I have a fantasy. I mean, Lord only knows alternate realities and all, but I have a fantasy that I'd be a senior leader in a healthcare organization that isn't a psychotic hellscape like so many of them are. Yeah, they are. And now you obviously have like this huge passion to impact others essentially from your wound. If you had it all your way, what does the future look like for you? What impact do you want to have? For me? Yeah. <laughs> I don't even think about it that way. Okay, so uh, okay, so here's what here's what I'm looking to do and whether or not I can accomplish it in my lifetime, I don't know. I know that healthcare in the USA is a business. And as a business, it doesn't necessarily the, the, the features of being a doctor in American healthcare, especially fee for service, right? Employee physicians are dominated by the business considerations of their employer. Because the CEO is on a different. The CEO's vision of success is completely different than anybody working in the front lines. If I'm working in the front lines, doctor, nurse, practitioner, PA, I want to yeah. do good work. CEO mm -hmm. wants to make a bunch of money. And you can't separate those two things. So there's a lot of academic research showing burnout rates and all this other stuff. And you know, the CEO, CFO, they don't care. They just don't care. They'll never care. You can't get them to care. But what they do care about is case studies of profitability in the Harvard Business Review. They care a lot about that kind of stuff. So what I want to do is take all the work that we've done to create organizational burnout prevention strategies, corporate level burnout prevention strategies, and prove that when you take better care of their people, when you take better care of your people 
and they are healthier and happier and believe you have their back because it's true, it will affect those people's participation in a way that results in higher levels of profit because they will not only take better care of each patient they see, but they'll be able to see more patients. And creating that white paper of well-being as a critical success factor in the future, I believe is going to get easier as we go forward towards 2030, simply because of the crushing shortages in doctors and nurses that are about to hit us like lemmings jumping off a cliff in, a, in an extreme shortage of doctors and nurses, unless you can develop the AI robot and all the venture capitals doing this, they want a machine learning AI holographic doctor that can replace humans. They don't want to have to deal with humans at all. But if you're going to be a healthcare delivery organization where people take care of people, you have to, I think in the near future, establish that you're a superior place to work because I don't have, I don't have to put up with your stuff anymore. If you know, you've got 25 vacancies and you're not getting anybody interviewing. It's a seller's market. Be flexible, interview, decide what you really want. And if you're not feeling the love where you are now, get out of there. And it's only going to get easier to find a place that's more like your ideal job description as the years roll forward into 2030. And if you're a healthcare leader, if you're a leader who wants to establish that better workplace, gosh, call me. Gee whiz. <laughs> call me. Let's talk about it. It's not rocket science. Yeah. Is the ideal job description process, is the Venn of happiness, are those things like it takes a whole bunch of intellectual capital to understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. No. And I'll say right now, I don't have an original thought in my head. If you go back to the origin of these ideas, it's always the ancient Greeks, but that's true of anything yeah. that's classically mm -hmm. relevant in human beings. Now I'm curious because with that vision of really uh, the undertaking of helping physicians and clinicians be healthier, what impact do you think that would have on healthcare? Well, if you can show a superior business case, right? Mm -hmm. So if you can create a setting, a reproducible setting where you can mm -hmm. change the system of care, this isn't about building a better doctor. This is about building a better system into which to put those canaries, a better coal mine to put the canaries into, right? If you can yeah. build that, by the way, it was built, it was built 10 years ago. <laughs> uh, it's not even like I have to teach you anything that's unique to me. We've proven this over and over and over again. But once you establish that case, there will be a, a segment of the pie of the American healthcare market that will say, hey, we want to follow that model. We want we, ethical leaders that say not only do CEO says not only do I want to be more profitable and have a great reputation. Uh, <clears throat> and you think about people like Jamie Dimon, you think about these people that are like uh, Wall Street people. I want to have a great reputation. I want us to be more profitable. But you know what? I'd like to sleep in my bed at night with a smile on my face, knowing that we're a pretty good place to work. That ought to count for something. Those kinds of leaders will maybe come to the, to the side of this kind of systems of care and structure and staffing levels yeah. that have been proven, even in the academic community, they've been proven at least three times over the last 10 years, um, that we can make it so that, I mean, right now, 
I'll admit that I see a biased audience. I'm sitting as a, a lighthouse on the internet for doctors in distress. So people don't come to me to tell me how great their workplace is. Yeah. But I can tell you that the working conditions in general in the fee-for-service employee physician marketplace, which is the majority of American doctors by far, conditions are horrible right now. And I'll put a stake in the ground. What is this? It's December 9th of 2022. Horrible. And so um, the short staffing, support staff, short staffing means everybody's working without the people on the team that they should have. The physician retirement cliff is starting, by the way, 45% of American doctors are over the age of 55 and it's way worse in nurses. And so um, they just cut Medicare reimbursement for physician (laughs) fees by eight and a half percent. Are you with me? So, so my, 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 Thought process is if you're a doctor in a fee-for-service setting employee, the most important thing for you to do, if you're feeling heat and stress because of your practice, is to circle your wagons. When you go into work, do a huddle with the team that supports you most closely. I'm an outpatient doc. So my receptionist, if I have one, my MA, if I have one, my nurse that screens my calls coming in, if I have one, grab that little team, ask them how they're doing, run your schedule, make sure you time out early and often if things get hairy and take really good care of those people that can have a really positive influence on your day. That is the the lowest common denominator of wellness is your own personal work environment at work. Mm-hmm. And um, if, if it turns out that you can't maintain some sort of sanity in that setting, interview always be interviewing. I love that. We are running up on time. So <laughs> Becky, do you have any other questions? And two, we'd love to have you back and dig into some of more things that you've talked <laughs> okay. about. Yeah. If you're open to that. Yeah. yeah. Sure. I feel like we're just yeah. getting started with a lot of things right. we could. Have. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, and you're asking so, me to unpack, you're asking me to unpack. I, I mean, I graduated from my residency in 87. Yeah. You're asking me to unpack a lot. Absolutely. And this is just a a scoop of a taste scoop. Yes. And it's challenging to do all the work that you've done on the other side of medicine, too, uh, you know, in 45 minutes that we have. So I definitely want to have you come back. So any final thoughts of um, from this discussion that we've had so far as we wrap up? Probably the most important thing these days is to have a boundary ritual. So let me teach the boundary ritual real quick. I can do it in 60 seconds. Sure. Boundary ritual is a physical act that you do between work and home. And when you do it, doesn't matter what it is, you say to yourself, with this action, I'm coming all the way home. And it could be as simple as when you pull into the driveway and you park your car and put it into park, as you touch the keys or the button that shuts your car off, take a big breath in. And as you exhale, just let go of anything that need to be there that day. Turn the key off with this action. I'm coming all the way home and walk into the house. Now, the usual things that we see people use as a boundary ritual would be keys, doorknobs, take out your contacts, put on your glasses, take a shower, change your clothes, hug the kids, pet the dog, weed the garden, fix yourself something to drink, journal, but have a ritual, not alcohol, have a ritual between work and home where you 
let go. And then we've also developed a, a methodology for helping people when they have charts left and they're on call to do the same thing. Because that's, I mean, that's yeah. the surgeons I've got. They're on call. They've got chart notes. So pin in that, Becky, for next conversation. Yeah. Well, it's keyed on the observation that if you're on call, the only time you're on call, typically, if you're not in the hospital, mm -hmm. the only time you're on call is when you're on the phone. Yeah. And if you're doing charts, the only time you're doing charts is when you're doing charts. That's a good distinction. <laughs> and, and it puts it into perspective. Again, it's so simple, yet not easy. Right. Yeah. yeah. Distractions and other things come up and focus. Yeah. Big deal. So. Thank you for. But yeah. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us <laughs> sure. today on the Leadership Pulse. And we would love to have you back. Yep. Yes, absolutely. We appreciate your time. Great, great conversation. Yeah. Thank you again so much. My pleasure. Perfect. And thank you everyone for joining this episode of the Leadership Pulse.